Let's look at the book of Micah. We'll finish up our time together today with Micah. Another one of the minor prophets, the 12. Another one of the 8th century. He was a prophet to the south. Micah and Isaiah have some things in common. They were, they were both uh, prophets to the south during the 8th century, but they also have some overlap in their actual um, text that we have in the scriptures. So Micah 4, 1 to 3, and Isaiah 2, a 1 to 4. So I have uh, Micah 4 up here on the screen. It says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and be raised above the hills. People will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples, and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows, and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. And so this passage is, is also, as I mentioned, um, connected in Isaiah chapter 2, 1 to 4. So one of the questions that comes to light is what's the relationship between these two? We've mentioned this previously in another class, but uh, did uh, one get the information from the other, or they both get it from a common source, etc.? So that debate will come into play with uh, the relationship and with the dating and the time frame of them. So speaking of the timeline and the time frame, here's our timeline for <coughs> Micah. Um, in the, the mid-700s, okay, Jotham was reigning in Judah, and Pekahiah in Israel. So when you, th when you hear Pekah or Pekahiah, just think the end of Israel. That, that's the end of the line, okay? And then Assyria conquers Israel in 722, demonstrating my point, right? Um, Ahaz in Judah here, Hezekiah in Judah, and Babylon conquers Judah there. So we're, we're mainly talking at the, the 700s, mid-700s down uh, to the end. So let's look at uh, our world powers again. Obviously, we are just before uh, the 600s on the left side of the, of the line here. And so that's going to be uh, Assyria. Where are the places? Uh, Lachish is going to be a place that is uh, somewhat important in the, the connection between Moresheth okay, and Jerusalem. All right? So this group, just think of as just to the west of the Dead Sea. All right? Samaria up there, the capital of the, of the north. So those are just some of the places that will become important in the book for us. All right? The title and the general information taken from the main character. That's the title of uh, Micah is. And that's about all that uh, I have for that. The author himself, <coughs> um, his name means who is like Yahweh. It's actually a shortened form of Micaiah, prophet during Ahab's time about 100 years earlier. He is from Amorasheth a Judean village bordering the Philistine territory of Gath. So he's right next to the Philistines. Jeremiah 26.11 mentions this place, Morsite, as well. It's about 1,000 feet above sea level with a view of the coastal plain to the west and the fortified city. So to some degree, it's, a, it's kind of like a, a lookout um, area. It's about six miles northeast of Lachish, a day's walk from Tekoa, which is where Amos is from. Okay, So there might have been some overlap in the relationship there as well. A farmer railing against oppression of the middle class. All right. Critics attribute chapters 1 to 3 to Micah, for the most part, and chapters 4 to 5 and 7 and 8 to a later author or editor. No consensus about chapters 6, 1 through 7, 7. So you know by now that this is standard 
Okay, there's always there's the traditional view, there's the critical view, and there's a whole lot of question marks in between it all. So probably around 735 to 700 while Assyria was rising to power. All right, contemporary of Hosea, Isaiah, and Amos. Active under the reign of Jotham, Ahab, and Hezekiah. <coughs> so, a little bit after Jonah. The historical context. In Jeremiah's day, the elders referred to uh, Micah, and they quoted Micah 3.2 in defense of Jeremiah's message of judgment on the nation. So, that means the... Prophecy was was well known enough that they would quote it in relationship to Jemi Jeremiah's ministry. <coughs> so while Jeremiah was trying to turn the hearts of the people of the south back to God, uh, before they were carried away like the north was. Tiglath Pileser, um, Babylonian pole, um, was penetrated Israel's coastal plain in 734. He marched through the uh, Philistine territory near Micah's hometown on the way to this wadi, this riverbed area in the Sinai. Sennacherib in 701 rushed through Syria, Phoenicia, and came down the plain of Sharon, and then the Shephelah, taking 46 fortified cities, including the nine that are mentioned in Micah 1, 10 to 15. So this demonstrates what I had earlier mentioned, that this is kind of a, a lookout area in a sense. So <coughs> when Tiglath came down, and he marches through Philistia, so this is all areas that are nearby, okay? So remember, we're also nearby to Jerusalem. So uh, Jerusalem is going to rely upon these lookout cities for the activity. They don't have, uh, you know, live satellite cams and uh, CNN to do the reporting. So <coughs> one of the things they did have is uh, smoke big fire signals. And when the fire signal started, they got put out, uh, that was a sign that the city was taken over, and the enemies put out the fire signal so they couldn't take it down. Um, so, further comparisons of uh, Hosea and um, Isaiah. I don't know why it says Hosea. I didn't make this chart. That should say uh, Micah. I should have actually cut the top off. Um, both prophecy of an early invasion by Assyria. Both spoke of Judah's deliverance, but later captivity in Babylon. Both emphasized the futility of mere ritual religion. Both prophesied of Messiah's coming, Isaiah's virgin birth, Micah the village birth. Both prophesied Israel's final deliverance, which had to be preceded by repentance. Um, some differences. Isaiah primarily addressed the aristocracy of urban Jerusalem, while Micah spoke to the common people, the rural, the farmers, the countryside. All right? So you got one speaking to the elite and upper class, and one speaking to uh, the lower class. All right, um, Isaiah dealt largely with the international scene and Judah's false political alliances. Uh, Micah focused more on the personal and social sins of injustice that were uh, prevalent during the time period. Isaiah extended his judgment to the surrounding nations, and Micah limited his to Judah and Israel. Isaiah centered his messianic vision around the servant concept, emphasizing atonement and personal salvation. And Micah portrayed Messiah's national deliverance made possible by God's pardon and grace as promised to Abraham. <coughs> All right. So when you look at uh, the two of them, you can see that there's definitely some similarity. There's some overlap between... Uh, the prophets, and what God is is trying to get across, the message he's trying to get across. So, God cares about both. One of the things that in the prophecies, you have the idea of both your personal relationship, responsibilities, and justice issues, as well as the societal. So, th there's a level in which uh, society has a responsibility to justice, so social um, justice, but then also self-justice. Like, you're responsible for how you live your life, and if you're a just or an unjust person, and you can't uh, you can't cross that off on society, like we live in a corrupt society, that's how things are. Well, that might be, but um, you still have choices about how you live your life, and so you have to uh, demonstrate that the 
himself as well. The theme of Micah, one of the themes or ideas in Micah is that the Lord uh, makes this loving but final appeal to his people. Hear the word, okay? Now, hear the word is going to be a, a key uh, phrase. We're going to list that under the structure section, but here it is listed multiple times. Um, walking, walking in the Bible has to do with how you live your life, okay? The path or the walking or where your feet go. So feet that run to evil, when the Bible says that, okay, um, Proverbs and the prophets probably, when your feet run into evil, that's, that's about the way you live your life. That's the same as path. Psalm 1 talks about uh, sitting in the seat of sinners or something about in the path of the unrighteous, right? Hanging out with them, living your life in a way that lines up with them, all right? Um, elsewhere, the, the Proverbs talk about how God will um, prepare or clean the path before you. say um, probably how I just said it the, the way you live your life or your lifestyle when you talk about your lifestyle um, and if this happens then you're going to become part of the remnant um, and the idea of God gathering his remnant back is repeated multiple times throughout the book of Micah Micah 6 8 is probably the most famous and well known passage in fact there is a organization a missions organization uh, that works with schools um, known as a PSBA we did some partnering with them. Micah 6.8. Uh, they get it from here. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. There's songs made right off of that, uh, etc. So, the theme of Micah. Okay, in the New Testament, Micah shows up in the Gospels as well as some of the other uh, literature, both the book of Revelation and <coughs> the epistle of Romans uh, by Paul. And so there's several places where uh, Micah shows up there. <coughs> so let's look at the structure a little bit. Um, David Dorsey, I usually refer to his, his structure, and this is the, the book. Um, sections normally he'll then have a further section with the structure of that with commentary explaining the, the gist of the book it's not an in-depth commentary obviously you can tell by the size of it it covers the whole Old Testament but that's a top 10 book in my opinion so I usually quote him every week for a reason so that's the structure of, of the book the uh, coming defeat and destruction is paralleled with the future reversal of defeat and destruction the corruption of the people in chapter 2, the corruption of the people in chapter 7, the corruption of the leaders in chapter 3 and in chapter 6, and in the middle, the turning point, the future restoration, which is picked up again in the chapter 7, 8 through 20 section as well. That's also related to the previous slide that referred to the remnant. And so in the book of, of Micah, you have this aspect of both judgment and salvation. And in fact, um, Dr. Uh, James Hamilton talks about it, as do several of the commentaries. I think Hamilton's um, his book is called, his, uh, his uh, biblical theology book is called uh, Judgment Through Salvation. I think I mentioned this to you before. And so in Judgment Through Salvation, you know, he's got a little, maybe a page or two pages on uh, Micah. And so 
he refers to that as well. And uh, this is a threefold judgment salvation cycle in the book. The book of Micah consists of three messages, each of which begin with the word here. So when you were reading it, I don't know if you, you noticed these things or not. Um, I, I write it in my Bible. I, I mark it up. Um, and you can, you can tell what I've read or studied the most probably by the, what's marked up in the Bible. Um, but the word here. So in, in 1, 2, and 3, 1, and 6, 2. So 1, 3, and 6, basically, in the beginning of it, is this word here. Okay? Um, listen. Listen, all you peoples. Pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Um, then I said, listen, leaders of Jacob, in verse, or chapter 6. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. So each one of these. So the idea here is that there's an alternating pattern between judgment, which starts with this listen, okay, in chapters 1, 3, and 6, and then a salvation aspect that comes after that in chapters 2, 4, and 5, and 7. So judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. So which, um, which I think you can tell is what actually is salvation is through faith. Okay, because that's how that's how it works. He argues that from Genesis to Revelation, it is salvation through judgment. Right. In chapter three, verse nine, and chapter six, verse two, the word is repeated again, but that is simply a, a carryover from the previous. It's not a you know, separate new agreement. All right. So if you if you break that down, okay. So this is from uh, Cross Point Bible Institute, I believe. So you notice they got three cycles: cycles one, two, three, just like we just talked about. You notice that they each start with what we just said: one, two, three, one, and six, one. Okay, so it's the same thing. All right. So all we have here is it further broken down with uh, more uh, topic-driven and narrow, narrower focus. So you can have each of the sections. All right? And so you can see here, and of course, <coughs> they have uh, the superscription is verse 1, and then the prophesied judgment, the prophet's lament, the particular sins, uh, and, and you just continue on. You, you can read uh, through it. Okay? <coughs> the book of Micah is a lawsuit. Okay, so we've talked about lawsuits before. Um, the word riv, okay, Hebrew word. So whereas in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the heavens and the earth are called to witness against Israel, Micah announces that Yahweh himself will be a witness in verse 2, which I just read a second ago to you. Listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth, and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you. So it's not like the others in uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah where God says, I call the heavens, I call the earth. They've all seen what you've done. You know, it's not like they can like, literally speak, right? saying, I'm calling them as a witness. Well, here, God says, I'll be my own witness. I'm the witness to what you've done. I'm the witness to the broken covenant. Judgment is coming like it did during Saul's kingship. Yet the Philistines should not gloat about it. Now, so verse 10, don't announce it in Gath, don't weep at all. In Beth, Lipharach, roll in the dust. Um, this phrase doesn't ring a bell to you and me, but don't announce it in Gath is something that kind of became a catchphrase after Saul's interactions with the Philistines and, and his losses and defeats to the Philistines. And so uh, this is, is mentioned in here as well, and uh, Micah is also alerting or, or telling the, the Philistines that when God comes and judges the Israelites, his people, don't you be gloating about it, okay? And so here we have this other aspect where we find in Scripture that you don't rejoice over other people's misfortunes, and God is calling even the Gentiles, the pagans, to that same uh, level of uh, concern. So the superscription, okay? The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Marshite, what he saw regarding... Samaria and Jerusalem. Okay, where is Samaria? Yes, so it's the capital, right? And Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, right? So the two capital cities. What he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of uh, Judah. Okay, so this has to do with that time period, what he's seeing, and both the north and the south, what's going on there. Okay, 
Uh, this judgment is followed by salvation in 2, 12 to 13. So 1B, 1-2-B to 2-11 is this a judgment. So we're, we're looking at the judgment salvation um, side to this, okay? So <coughs> the judgment is followed by salvation. So what, what do we find when we read it? Well, the first thing is, I've already mentioned, that Yahweh is the witness. The first is the call out in verse 2. Listen. Okay, pay attention. Then you have that God himself is the witness, also in verse number 2. Then in verse 3, you have how the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. Okay? Now there's some parallel aspects. You can look in the rest of scripture. If you um, um, look at I didn't use the, uh, the phrase, well, it does say coming down. Um, so that's very similar to the Tower of Babel. God came down to look what was going on, and then he judged Babel. Um, but here he's coming down in judgment to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will mount beneath him. So he's trampling the heights, the mountains. So the mountains are nothing. Your fortifications, we saw this last week with uh, Edom. Okay, It doesn't matter if you have a you know, rock-hewn fortress. Okay, When God comes down, it melts. Right, it's nothing. It says in verse 4, the mountains will melt beneath him. The valley will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. So what we see as this superior strength and stability and protection, God is like, it's like wax next to a fireplace, man. It's nothing. You know? It just melts at my presence. All this will happen, verse 5, because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll the stones into the valley and expose her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. Her wages will be burned with the fire. I will destroy all her idols. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used again for a prostitute. So, <coughs> Yahweh is witness. Yahweh is judge. Okay, judgment is coming like it did during Saul's kingship. Um, Israel's wickedness in chapter two, verses one to two. In chapter two, uh, you have the the woe mentioned. Okay, now um, I might come back to verse to one seven, the, the prostitution going on. But in chapter two, woe, and so. Uh, the woe that we've talked about before, uh, Doug Stewart says that you have this woe and weal um, aspect there, weal being related to the, the language. But a woe um, has to do with a funerary lament. We're talking about a funeral here. So you lament at a funeral. You cry out in um, despair. Um, but if someone is woeing to you and you're alive, then what are they saying? They're saying you're about to die. A woe is what happens at a funeral, okay? So about it's about someone that's died. So if you're getting a woe, does that make sense? They're saying you're about to die. And so in 2.1, woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans in their beds. And so the, the prophet Micah is saying um, you're about to die. So they go with the idea that it's a judgment, that God's coming down. He, he's going to melt the mountains, okay? And you're going to face uh, his judgment. The... The idea of gatherings that are mentioned in verse 12 of chapter 2. And if you go back to the slide that shows uh, the theme, um, the gathering uh, motif is repeated in several different places here. And that presupposes, okay, some kind of exile. Okay, if you're gathering, that means they've been what? They've been scattered. Okay, and the scattering is the judgment of exile throughout the prophets. So there's going to be the scattering, but then there's also this gathering that happens in a new exodus and a return to the land led by Yahweh. Okay, so that's what's going on here as well. In 2.12 it says, I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant, there's the word remnant again, of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its fold. It will be noisy with people, lots of them. Okay? Uh, so he, he's going to bring them back <coughs> into the fold. Part of 
God's plan, of course, even after his judgment, is always this idea of, of restoration, of bringing the people back to himself. That's the end game plan, always. In uh, chapter 1, 10 to 15, additionally, you will see a large number of towns that are mentioned. So not only does he say don't announce it in Gath, um, but also you have residents of Sephir, residents of Zanon, um, Beth Ezel, etc. mentioned here. And so these are the names of towns that actually are taken by the Assyrians. And so there's a lot of wordplay in the Hebrew on, on these uh, terms. And that reflects the various disasters that Judah is going to face. And so, you can see in this, this uh, call-out section here, okay, so here's, here's Judah, Jerusalem, etc. And so in this call-out, here's the different uh, cities that are being referred to. They end up facing um, judgment via Assyria. Alright. Um, chapter 3. Verses 1 to 12. So this is the second okay, judgment series. The first one started in chapter 1, verse 2. The, the second one is now in chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. This judgment is followed by a salvation section in chapters 4 to 5. Okay, Same pattern. Israel's rulers are indicted for their injustice. For, for what? For their abusive leadership in chapter 3, verse 4 to 7. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says... Now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate good and love evil. So yeah, right there, verse 2, that's the problem. You hate good and you love evil. You tear off the skin of people and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh in a cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes they have committed. Okay, now, most likely this is uh, metaphorical language, right? But there's actually kind of a pun. Because what is going to happen to them? Yeah. What he's figuratively saying that they're doing to the people is what is going to literally happen to them by the Assyrians. The lame and the exiles will gather, and the victory will be given, chapter 4. The ruler from Bethlehem is promised, and the defeat is promised for Assyria. And so, the leaders in chapter 3, both um, the prophets, which are, are type of leaders, and the other leaders of the cities will be judged, and the city itself will be destroyed, in chapter 3, verse 9. Listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe, her priests keep for payment, and her prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Isn't the Lord among us? No calamity will overtake us. Lean means to trust. Okay? Lean on. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins, and the hill of the Temple Mount will be a thicket. And so the, the judgment of, of chapter 3 on the rulers, the leaders, the prophets, the, the city itself, okay, because of their oppression and their perversion, um, gives way in chapter 4 to a salvation in the last days. That's the phrase in chapter 4, verse 1, in the last days. The mountains of the Lord's house will be established. So the mountains of you, Jerusalem, will be melted as wax or running water. But in contrast, that's, that's uh, chapter 1, right? But in contrast, the mountains of the Lord's house, chapter 4, will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. So his buildings go higher and higher. 
Whereas the Peebles buildings, despite the fact that you thought they were high, go lower and lower. Instead, they'll trample upon it. Many nations will come in verse 2 of chapter 4 and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. So here, God is going to have it that people are being taught his ways. Why? So you can walk in his ways. You can't walk in the ways that you don't know. So you're going to be taught them so you can know them. This is why discipleship is so important. Not that discipleship is a series of books or anything, but discipleship is, is teaching people one-on-one, two-on-two in life. Um, but it involves learning the word. What was the requirement for the kings of Israel? They were to diligently copy out under the oversight of the priest a copy of the law and meditate on it day and night. So when David meditates on it day and night, what is that saying? It's saying that David is a king after God's own heart. Make sense? So if that's what they're supposed to do, what are we supposed to do? I mean, the idea of Christian having a quiet time or a daily devotion is, is not prescribed in chapter and verse as such. Have a quiet time. Have a daily devotion. But it is prescribed in other verbiage, right? I mean, if the expectation is, uh, you know, hear, O Israel, meditate on the law day and night, well, there you go. It's been prescribed, right? <laughs> um, we just call it the Bible instead of uh, the law. Which, take that back. What, what does the law mean? Torah. Torah. The Torah is what? Yeah, exactly. So, same thing. Instruction will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In contrast to what he had just said, as he judged the leaders who only talk for money and profit. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitrations for the strong nations <coughs> that are far away. And they'll beat their swords into plows. And so we're going to get rid of the wars. We're going to have people that are proclaiming and living for Yahweh. We're going to have uh, just judgment and righteousness that we talked about last week. Proper righteousness, proper justice is going to be um, carried out. Um, each man, verse 4, will sit under his own grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has promised this. So all the peoples each walk in the name of their gods, we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. So again, this idea that, yeah, we still have Yahweh as our national God, but we've got our personal God. No, it's going to be replaced by the fact that everybody is going to have not just a national Yahweh is our God of Israel, but no, Yahweh's who I follow. It's not just your God. It's like when Ruth says to Naomi, your God will be my God. So there's, there's a, uh, a change of allegiance here. <clears throat> What's going on? Um, verse 6. Okay, so verse 1 said in the last day. Verse 6 says on that day. Okay? I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered. So here is that remnant being gathered up again. And here is the idea that I said that gathering presupposes scattering. Well, he, he tells you flat out. Gather the scattered. Okay, those I have injured, I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. And then the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forevermore. And you, watchtower for the flock, fortified hill of daughter Zion, the former rule will come to you, Sovereignty will come to daughter Zion. And so God brings victory to his people. God is going to be the one to establish this. After judgment takes place, there will be this salvation aspect that comes um, to his people. M uh, many nations will, will then, because of this, they will see the, the light of the, of the gospel, the good news um, that Isaiah talks about. And then uh, he continues in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is also well known. If, um, if 6, 8 is maybe the most well-known, um, in certain circles at least, 5, 2 is the other probably most well-known passage because of the Messianic prophecies and the birth of Jesus. Talking about uh, Jesus. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Therefore, he will abandon them until the time. And so in, um, in 5, 2... Let me, um, I'm probably jumping ahead of myself here. I should have advanced this. <coughs> so we've, we've already covered uh, that there, I think, with 3.12. And 4, 1 through um, 4, uh, I just covered that as, as well. I just, I never advanced the slides, I'm sorry. And 
the idea that the last days that the, the, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established. I, I do have the parallel passage in Isaiah here now. Um, it says the same thing. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains. It will be raised up above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Come, let us go to the mountain of God. So, again, you see, literally, just about almost verbatim, Isaiah and uh, Micah. Okay? So, Micah 5, 2. That's, just, that's what I just was. So, just catching the slides up. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Okay, this is the old name of Bethlehem. Okay? Like, why does it say that? We're like, where is that place? It's Bethlehem. It's just the old name of it. If you look at Genesis chapter 35, 16 to 20, it says they set out from, from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephraim. Rachel began to give birth, and her labor was difficult. During the difficult labor, the midwife said, Don't be afraid. You have another son. And with her last breath, she, as she was dying, she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephraim, that is Bethlehem. There you go. Bethlehem. Ephrath, or Ephrathah. Jacob set up a marker on her grave, and it's the marker on Rachel's grave to this day. So, 5-2 refers to Bethlehem. <coughs> so, you're going to have him born in Bethlehem, and then you will have, you will rule from there. He will abandon them until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel and will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. And when Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. Okay, so there's a couple of things in here. The Assyrian invasion is also mentioned and, and referred to. That, that is going to happen. But... <coughs> The ruler that's going to come uh, from Bethlehem is then is picked up in the Gospels by Matthew and applied to Jesus. So we don't have time today to um, get into the hermeneutical discussion about the word fulfilled. Okay, that's that's a huge issue um, of of how it's used by Matthew and others. But there's general arguments that are advocated. One is the idea that the the prophets in the Old Testament, you know, they would speak something and they might not know what the future fulfillment was going to be about. And so this was a, a straightforward predictor of prophecy about Jesus Christ. Okay, that's one. The other is, is that, um, remember how we talked about the hills of prophecy? So you, you see this hill, but you can't really see the other side of it. So some would argue for that or even a multiple fulfillment. So there's something that's going to take place within the time period of uh, Micah or, or thereafter, uh, but then it can be further fulfilled later on, like in Jesus. And then you have the, the analogy argument um, that the passages are used um, by analogy by New Testament authors to substantiate their point. So of Joel, right, about Pentecost. Okay, this is that that Joel was talking about, you know. Or with um, Matthew, when he's talking about um, Micah 5.2. So when when Herod, you know, butchers the, the babies in uh, the two-year-olds and under in Bethlehem, and uh, the cries from Is that all related to this, or is it by analogy? So those are the, the questions that come from this. So you got uh, chapter 1 was the judgment, followed by the salvation. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1, judgment, followed by the salvation aspect in chapters 4 and 5. And then chapter 6, verse 1, we revert back to what again? The judgment. Okay, again, followed by the salvation aspect. So... The summons to the mountains and the foundations of the earth to hear Yahweh's case against his people. And so again, in chapter 6, it starts with the phrase, um, Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains. So now we have even more lofty terminology. 
in the hills hear your voice. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, okay? So you've got plead your case, you've got lawsuit, you know, testimony imagery. The mountains and enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case, there's the word again, against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery. Sent Moses, etc. So, okay, what he's going to do here is...
you're there at the altar with a, an offering for me, a sacrifice, an offering for me, and you remember that your brother has something against you. What's he told to go do? Leave what you have behind. Drop that thing. I don't want it. Go be reconciled. And that's not even something you did wrong. It's that you remember, or it's brought to your mind, that your brother has something against you. Like, you're not ticked off at him. He's ticked off at me. We're all like, whatever, that's his problem. God says, no, that's your problem. Go be reconciled. We look elsewhere in the scripture, and we'll see why there's a problem. Because if you're out of your brother, you're in danger of the judgment. Right? Sermon on the Mount, the whole rocker thing. So if you're out of your brother, you're in danger of the judgment. So if you don't go reconcile with your brother, actually you don't love your brother. So if your brother's about to be judged by God because of his anger at you, so if you actually care about him, you'll help him get his anger fixed and be reconciled to you so he doesn't get the judgment of God. You get all that? So that's not much different than what's going on right here. Don't matter about your sacrifice. Drop it. We need to get this fixed right here. We need to be walking right with God. So he clarifies here covenant living. Covenant living clarified. He says in verse 9, which, which, by the way, this is the same thing I, I mentioned earlier today. This thought's irrelevant. With Malachi. God goes off about the sacrifices there too. There they're offering bad sacrifices. Um, and he doesn't know. The voice of the Lord calls out to the city, and it is wise to hear your name. Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordains it. But the rod, the rod, what? The rod of correction, right? Started out for the child, you know, for Israel. Not exactly how it's said, but anyway. Um, but the Torah, for discipline, for instruction, for correction, for training you in the ways of the Lord, of righteousness. Are there still the treasures of wickedness and your curse of short measure? And the house of the wicked, what is a short measure? Well, you get down to verse 11. Can I excuse wicked scales? Or bags of deceptive weight? So what is all this? The short measure, the wicked scales, the deceptive weight. It's stealing. It's stealing. So you pay by the pound. So you weigh out your flour into a little sack. And you come put it on the scale. But what you don't know is I got a hidden rock I drop on the scale back here. So you got to pay me extra. I'm robbing you. That's what's going on. The wealthy of the city, verse 12, are full of violence. Wealthy of the people, what is it, that oppress? What group of people oppress? The wealthy that oppress. In their business, it's not the poor that oppress. Poor are the oppressed. They might oppress one another to some degree. They have a societal system. Who oppresses? The wealthy oppress. And we oppress without even knowing it. Because the middle class is usually caught in the midst of it. Which brings me back to my conversation I had with my friend the other day about once you consent to the system, you're in the system. And so, you know, you're already consented. Too bad. Well, we were born into the system, right? Capitalism, for good or for bad. Like, we're born into it, right? We're born into how this all works. But we have an obligation to God and to people. So, if you're middle class, so you're You're not the bottom, so you're not being completely oppressed. <laughs> so you just really challenge their life, right? Well, not exactly, um, because you're part of a system which by default probably oppresses the poor. And now that you know, you have a responsibility. <laughs> anyway, um, so the wealthy of the city are full of violence, and its residents speak lies. Its tongues and their mouths are deceitful. Um, you know, uh, I laugh. I don't have the time. Otherwise, I would have already written a couple of blogs about OCPS. But um, I went by another school. I took a couple of pictures just so I could use them in my blog when I finally write it. But you know, OCPS has advertised on their on their billboards <coughs> at their schools. You know, we've served we've served 165,000 whatever lunches or something. Like th that's that's our claim to fame for the education system. We serve lunches. Like it's ridiculous. So, um, I was working from home that day, 
someone from one of the higher ups, the school board or something from OCPS, they tweeted out to reassure all the parents that um, academic uh, education is still going on despite that we're in lockdown. So, so don't be too concerned. Outright lie. My wife works at Evans. Lockdown means you can't leave classes. That means you're in the same classroom for seven hours. That teacher only teaches one subject. This high school, they go to different classes, right? They're in one classroom seven hours all day. No, they're not doing seven hours of regular instruction on a lockdown, okay? Like, I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, who buys these lies? Uh, I guess the public does. So, wicked scales, deceptive ways, city full of violence from the wealthy and the residents that speak lies and tongues that are deceitful. I mean, my goodness. Sorry, I don't mean to, like, Evan says, place of high achievement over on their, on their, their building. It's in the past now. Anyway. <coughs> um, I have begun to strike you severely and bring desolation because of your sins. So the judgment because of your sins. <coughs> you will eat but not be satisfied. For there will be hunger within you. What you acquire you cannot save and what you do save I will give to the sower. So it doesn't matter what you save. Okay, I'm going to put holes in your bags. I'm going to ruin your bank account. I'm going to burn your fields. Whatever. Okay, it's not going to happen. You will sow but not reap. You will press olives but not anoint yourself with oil and you will tread grapes but not drink the wine. The statutes um, of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house have been observed. You follow their policies. Therefore, I will make you a desolate place and the city's residents an object of concern. I'm in contempt and you will bear the scorn of my people. Uh, notice the, the use of the phrase my people. Okay, that should remind us of how in Hosea we had the you're not my people, you are my people thing. That's all about the covenant faithful influence. Then you've got Ahab and Omri brought in here. The fact that Ahab is brought in from chapter 6 verse 16 has led some scholars to argue that back in uh, I think it was chapter 1 or 2, something about a vineyard, that that may have been referring to Naboth's vineyard um, and how Ahab had stolen Naboth's vineyard. Okay, if, you know, if you're familiar with the story, I don't know, but in Kings. And so <coughs> that connection as an illustration there that he is actually referring to. So then, then you have, that's the covenant living clarified. What does it mean to live in God's covenant? In 7.1, how sad for me. I am like one who, when the summer fruit has been gathered, after the gleaning of the grape harvest, find no grape cluster to eat, no early fig, which I crave. Now, just a, a quick another thought. Um, Jesus came to a fig tree that was supposed to bear figs, right? And it didn't. And what did he do? He cursed it, right? And it withered up the next day. Okay, these are images. I don't catch these all the time when I'm studying, right? Some of this, like, just comes to me as I'm, as I'm teaching here, like that one just did. Okay, those are images of um, when, when Jesus is, is teaching on, those are images that come back from the Old Testament and the prophets. Like, I don't think that stuff's accidental. Um, if they knew the prophets, they would have known about this. They would have known about um, the salvation and judgment aspect of the Old Testament prophets and what he talks about. And since they were an agricultural uh, society for the most part, most of the illustrations and metaphors had to do, and judgments, had to do with agricultural stuff. That's what Jesus meant. So the woe that comes in 7, <coughs> 1 through 6. Um, godly people, in verse 2, have vanished from the land. There's no one upright among the people. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. That's Proverbs language also. Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The official and the judge demand a bribe, and when the powerful man communicates the evil desire, they plot it together. So the whole city, you're back to what he said earlier, the leaders of the city, okay, they're, they're all corrupt. Don't rely on your friends in verse 5, etc. A father uh, or a son considers his father a fool, and a daughter opposes um, her mother. A daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law, a person's enemies of the people in their own home. But as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. And here you have that glimmer of hope again. In the midst of the corruption, in the midst of all this injustice, I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will see. You again, you have the don't rejoice over me to the enemies. And so you have restoration, retribution, and rejoicing that end out this chapter 7. 
I must endure the Lord's rage until he argues my case and establishes justice for me. So you have the whole lawsuit aspect um, continuing on there. He will bring me into the light and I'll see his salvation. So the, the restoration that is, is talked about here and the earlier connections with in that day and in that future day and the regathering of the remnant, all this coming. Um, and, and verse 11, a day will come for rebuilding your walls. Well, Nehemiah rebuilt the walls in 52 days, right? Under the, the Persians. What are we talking about here? We're prior to the Assyrians. So you got to get through the Assyrian dominance, you got to get through the Babylonian dominance, and then you got to get into the Persian dominance when Cyrus is going to say you can go back home. All of which, remember what I said earlier? All three were prophesied by Isaiah. Before Cyrus was even born, Isaiah said that Cyrus will set free those who have been captured by Babylon after Cyrus has overtaken Babylon after Babylon has overtaken Assyria. It's all laid out already in, in God's timeline to the prophet. So, on that day, that phrase again, uh, verse 12 of chapter 7, the people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. That's both sides. Okay, east and west. Even from Edom to the Euphrates River and from the sea to the sea and the Mount Anon. The earth will become a wasteland because of its inhabitants as a result of their actions. The judgment um, of the earth about every single household like the Christians should have been the ones on the front line of spearheading that whole thing like get all that junk out of the landfills like we're just destroying the earth <coughs> in verse 14 and following the ending section shepherds of people with your staff do you want to be hit with the staff that's what it is right your rod and your staff they comfort me Psalm 23 Like a lament, right? A funeral dirge. Um, but it's, we'll see the lament in. 
judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation, uh, judgment, salvation, and no sense getting in praying at the end in verse 14, who's like our God? So that is uh, the book of Micah.